Hey, everybody, this is Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today it is my true pleasure to say we are joined by Congressman Ted Liu. He represents the 33rd Congressional District of Southern California. Congressman Liu is at the forefront of issues related to the environment, cybersecurity, civil liberties, government ethics, and veterans. He also serves as a colonel in the U.S. Air Force Reserves. Welcome, Congressman Liu. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you. Honored to be on your show. Well, first, we're talking to you in the wake of the election, and congratulations on your re-election. I suspect it will not be uh, the last one at all. And I want to dive right into President-elect Biden's victory. I know you've been talking about this a lot, and we still have a number of high-ranking members of the GOP who are supporting President Trump in these seemingly baseless lawsuits. I think his uh, win-loss record is now 0-13 and at the time that we're recording this. Do you have a sense of at what point does the GOP just say, enough, we're abandoning President Trump's efforts to win an election that's already been decided? Well, thank you for your question. Uh, The first thing to note is that this election at the presidential level was not close. Joe Biden won by over 5 million votes. He's on track to win somewhere between 6 million more votes than uh, Donald Trump. And Joe Biden also won multiple uh, swing states. His electoral college uh, number is going to be 306. So this is not a close election. And it's highly disturbing that a number of Republicans are either silent uh, or have, in fact, made insane statements uh, suggesting that somehow Donald Trump is going to win this election. He is not. I mean, this has been, for me, watching from the outside, one of the biggest questions, which is, I thought after President Trump was elected, well, there'll be guardrails in place because there are adults in the room, and you've been in the thick of it. Has there been a time where you've seen the GOP establishment say you've gone too far, either with respect to actions that Attorney General Barr has taken or, you know, with respect to filling Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat, is there any point where the Republican establishment has said, no, too far, please stop this? Unfortunately, the last four years have shown that there is no bottom to what Donald Trump can do and so have Republicans support him. It is incredibly disturbing to see my Republican colleagues basically remain silent or even support crazy things that he does or proposes. And it's something we're just going to have to grapple with. Uh, When the framers designed our system of government, uh, they assumed that we'd have checks and balances uh, with the courts, uh, with the legislature, and with executive branch. I don't think they understood uh, how far down the rabbit hole uh, a political party would go uh, to support the president. And I think that's something that they would not have expected. And something I think the American people uh, did not expect until these last four years happened. Yeah, it does seem to me um, that, and this is something I talk to my students about, that the Trump administration has been a stress test on our constitution, on our institutions, on our set of norms. And Congressman Liu, we talked a little bit about what the GOP has been doing the last four years or not doing. It seems to me, looking at demographics of the party's base, that the party is surviving largely because of these anti-majoritarian institutions, the Senate, the Electoral College, even the process of judicial review. 
from your vantage point in Washington, can the GOP survive long-term in its current form, or do we think that it needs a reboot to have long-term viability? I think in the long term, uh, the Republican Party's ideology is not sustainable, uh, but in the short term, it still is. And that's because you do have the Electoral College. What we have seen historically is Democrats winning the popular vote nationally every single time. So the Democratic Party has won the last four national uh, elections and captured a popular vote. But because the Electoral College, sometimes you'll have a Republican win the presidency. And that's just not going to change unless you amend the Constitution. Uh, now, in the long term, what will happen is a state like Texas or some other state will flip. And then it makes it impossible for Republicans to ever capture presidency uh, ever again, because their ideology is uh, pretty darn narrow. And with the Democrats, you saw that we have a big tent. And when Democrats turn out, uh, we win the national popular vote. And eventually, it's going to be so overwhelming that we're going to flip enough states that from the Electoral College standpoint, we're also going to crush it in Electoral College as well. It is interesting. We we had an episode with Jesse Wegman from the New York Times who wrote the book, you know, The Case for Abolishing the Electoral College. And it seems to me that once Texas turns purple or blue, we were going to hear calls for reform of the Electoral College from both parties. And one thing that I've been curious about just the past four years, the past four weeks, four days, do you think that the GOP establishment is going to splinter? Because at this point, as I see it, there's the kind of Bush, Romney, McCain Republicans, and then there are the more Trump supporters. Is there is there institutional weakness that you see? Do you think we could see a third party in our country? We do have now in the House of Representatives uh, some Republican members who are basically QAnon types, and they say crazy things. And it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, in the next two years. Uh, does that movement grow? Does it subside uh, when Donald Trump is no longer president? So that's a mystery. We won't know, and it's hard to predict in politics. Uh, the Republican Party really has an ideology that is not well-suited to progress. Uh, it's not well-suited to the changing demographics of America. Uh, we also know that young people overwhelmingly reject uh, the Republican Party, and they continue to increase uh, their share of the electorate. Uh, so I think in the short term, the Republican Party can hang on, but in the long term, they're not going to be viable as a national party. That's really interesting. And now let's pivot a little bit to to your party, to the Democratic Party. And I want to talk a little bit about defeating Trump and Trumpism. You said in the very beginning of our conversation, this election wasn't close. And absolutely, there were 77.5 million people about who voted for President-elect Biden, but about 72.5 million voted for President Trump. And that is still a huge number of people. Um, do you think that how does President-elect Biden do what he said he wanted to do in his victory speech? How does he effectively become the president for all Americans? So that's that's a great question. America is still fairly tribal when it comes to voting patterns. Uh, in other words, uh, people identify as 
uh, a Republican or as a Democrat uh, quite strongly when they go vote. And so you see that pattern play out this election. Uh, at the same time, you had a significant amount of people, uh, including Republicans uh, and conservative independents, who specifically went out to vote against Donald Trump. Uh, and this was, to me, a pretty stunning rejection of Donald Trump. And what we do know is that it's rare to take out an incumbent president. Uh, he has all the trappings of power. He can fly Air Force One around to all these different places. Uh, he can use the federal government to try to help him uh, get reelected. And he tried everything uh, and he failed. Uh, so let's understand what happened here. Uh, the American people rose up and specifically went out to vote him out. So, it, yes, they rose up to vote him out. Doesn't and maybe this is because I'm a pessimist, but it doesn't seem to me to be a total repudiation of Trumpism. And you had just mentioned that some of your colleagues in the House of Representatives are essentially peddling falsehoods and conspiracy theories. Uh, some of your Republican colleagues, and I'm wondering if you think what can the Democratic Party do? You think to better message to create a situation where there is a total repudiation of Trumpism, where uh, it seems to me in the down ballot races in the Senate and the House, it wasn't a horrible night actually for Republicans, but but maybe I'm looking at it in the wrong way. Uh, so my view, uh, because of what you just said, uh, is that this was actually a repudiation of Donald Trump and Trumpism. It was not a repudiation of the Republican Party. So what you had happen is a number of Republicans and conservative independents who specifically went out and voted against Donald Trump and for Joe Biden. And then down ballot, they voted Republican because that's who they are, they're Republicans. So they weren't rejecting their own party. They were rejecting Donald Trump and what he stood for. Uh, so to me, that is actually a rejection of Trumpism. Now, we'll see what happens in the uh, next you know, four years. But to me, the best thing that Joe Biden can do is to... Uh, get laws into place to help the American people, uh, whether it's healthcare or infrastructure uh, or reducing the price of insulin. I think the best way uh, for Joe Biden to govern is not only to reach out to everyone in all 50 states, but also to get laws passed uh, that will help our country. It's a really important prism that I think that you put on the electoral, the election results, which is this can be a repudiation of Trump and Trumpism, even though it seems the Republican Party really did become the party of Trump. But because we're so tribal, it's not necessarily a repudiation of a party that so many Americans have been part of and have and have voted for. Um, now, you just mentioned a couple of the things that you would like President-elect Biden to accomplish, serving the American people, passing some sweeping legislation. It might feel obvious, but what are some of the biggest challenges for Democrats moving forward in the next, let's say, two years? Uh, so part of this does depend on whether the Senate flips and we'll know in January with the two special elections in Georgia. Uh, if the Senate doesn't flip, then we're going to have to uh, basically overcome the obstacle of a Republican-controlled Senate. Now, that can be done. I mean, we did pass laws uh, these last two years that did benefit the American people, not as much as Democrats would have wanted, 
but it's also a different dynamic now that you have a White House also in Democratic control, because there were certain issues uh, that did not become law, uh, even though it had bipartisan support because the president didn't want it. So, for example, uh, the DREAM Act, that has bipartisan support in both the House as well as the Senate. If you put it up for a vote, it would pass both houses. The reason that it was not on Donald Trump's desk is because he didn't want that legislation. It's different now. Uh, Joe Biden would sign it. And so on specific issues, I do think we can make progress. Uh, Marijuana legalization is another one. There is bipartisan support uh, for uh, marijuana legislation, whether you want to legalize it or uh, allow at least banking transactions to handle uh, cannabis uh, types of transactions. Uh, that would uh, also pass both the House and the Senate and get signed into law. The reason it didn't happen this term is because Donald Trump didn't want that legislation. Joe Biden is going to be fine signing that. So I think on certain issues, uh, we will see progress. Are there certain policy issues, certain legislative issues? You and I have talked a little bit about this offline, but that you want to tell the listeners, you know, if I could do three things in the next two years. These are the three that I want to accomplish. These are the three policy goals I want to achieve. Well, I actually want people to wear a mask in public, wash your hands frequently, and social distance. So if we get people to just do those three things, that would actually help our economy because the only way our economy recovers in full is to suppress this virus. Now, in terms of laws I like to get through, I do think we have to get infrastructure through. According to the American Society of Civil Engineers, we've got a $4 trillion infrastructure deficit. And that means we have roads, bridges, highways, critical infrastructure that needs to be repaired. And it's a good vehicle to also uh, have job creation. Uh, we are in a recession. We need to get out of it. So I'd like to see a major infrastructure package. I also uh, would like to see us protect health care. So let's see what the Supreme Court does with the Affordable Care Act. But we have to make sure that people can access affordable health care. And if that gets rolled back, then I think Congress needs to act. And then I think we need to take action on climate change. Uh, we're already far behind where we need to be uh, in getting uh, greenhouse gases under control. And that's going to have huge effects for our children and grandchildren if we don't act soon. Congressman Liu, thank you in the beginning of that answer for saying something that I wish we said more often, which is that it is not a choice between either the economy and our health and safety. And in fact, that these two things are consistent and they go hand in hand. And the way to have long-term economic recovery is to protect ourselves so we don't have these rolling shutdowns. And I think that that point bears repeating, and I appreciate that you have been repeating it uh, for almost seven months now. Um, I asked you about legislative goals. One of the last big things I want to ask you about is more institutional goals. So very few of us will ever get the position that you have in life, which is being an elected representative in Washington, D.C. It's a rarefied world. Are there certain institutions that you look at and say, if I had a magic wand, this is how I would, if I could talk to the founding fathers, I would say just not this institution or, or I wish we had this instead. That's a fascinating question. Uh, so one thing I've been trying to do in Congress is to 
pass a rules change that will allow Congress to use what's known as the power of inherent contempt. What we've seen these last four years is essentially the Trump administration just refusing to follow congressional subpoenas. And it's turned out that we don't actually have an enforcement mechanism. The enforcement mechanism we have is to go through court and litigate it, which takes years. So it's basically a fake enforcement mechanism if it's going to take years for you to try to get a witness to show up in a congressional hearing. So inherent contempt would allow us to fine witnesses monetary amounts if they ignore congressional subpoenas. And that's something I'd like to see uh, change so that Congress can reassert its authority to have congressional subpoenas followed. Uh, otherwise, you'll have both Democratic and Republican administrations continue to ignore congressional subpoenas with basically no consequences. I saw you uh, tweeting about why Congress needs this inherent power of contempt. And it's something I've actually talked to my students about. I never envisioned um, even three years ago that I would be having a, a basically devoting a class to this issue. And I'm glad that you're talking about it. And um, loyal listeners of Passing Judgment know that I always end the podcast with the same three questions because we learned a lot from you. And now we'd like to learn a little bit more about you. I will say um, I got to learn a lot about you before we even met because uh, it was about a decade ago now. I wrote a very tongue-in-cheek op-ed for a local outlet. You were running uh, for state senate in my district. It was right before Valentine's Day. And I wrote a uh, hopefully not overly snarky op-ed that said something like, Ted Lou, you're making my boyfriend jealous because I'm getting so much mail from you. And you had such a kind and lovely response. And um, and I thought that that was just very cool. And, and fortunately, I have now been the bad penny that keeps rolling back. I think you responded to that. And I said, that's a funny response. Will you now come be a guest speaker in my class? And you were there, I think, about a week later. And I will always appreciate that. So here is the first question, Congressman Liu. Which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? I think I'd like to invite any of the framers of the Constitution uh, to a dinner party because I'd like to ask them if they saw how our election just happened with the Electoral College, would they still have designed the Electoral College the way that they did? And also, I'd like to ask them why they wear those funny wigs. What the deal <laughs> is with that? Equally important, uh, you're going to be stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal. What is it? It's this dish called uh, kimchi jjigae. Uh, it is a spicy uh, stew-like dish uh, that some Korean restaurants have. So if you like kimchi, uh, you'll, you'll really like that. You get one superpower for an hour. What is it? To be able to time travel. I like to know how the Egyptians built the pyramids. I want to see if the dinosaurs actually had feathers. Um, what happened to the lost city of Atlantis? All sorts of things I like to know. Congressman Liu, I truly appreciate your time. I want to tell all my listeners, I'm sure they already follow you, but you can find Congressman Liu on Twitter in two places, at Ted Liu, all one word, also at Rep Ted Liu. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica. We want to really thank everybody for listening. Please check out our other episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon Music, and elsewhere. And we will see you next time.